0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, friends. Will you please join me in prayer one more time? Let's go to God and ask him for his help as we will look to his word to consider the reality of the Christian life, even in this fallen world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are sinners and you are righteous. We are wretches and you're holy. And yet in your love and grace and mercy, you have seen fit to adopt a people like us and make us your own. We're grateful. We're astonished at your love and your grace and your mercy for us. And we do acknowledge that we uh, are not strong and that many of us come in this morning and we're distracted or we're burdened. And we acknowledge that we will continue to be distracted and burdened unless you show up and overcome that for us. And so we pray that you would. We pray that you would come and minister to us by your Holy Spirit as we look to the truth of your word. Many in the room, even this week or lately in life, have experienced the reality of weariness. And we pray that you would come and minister to us and strengthen us and encourage us and comfort us and propel us forward in the Christian life as we consider the work of Jesus Christ in our place. We thank you for the honesty of your word. Your word isn't silent on the hard things in life. And we thank you. We pray for your help. We pray for your guidance now in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So this is, as Joshua alluded to, a little bit unusual for our church in that we are about to listen to or preach the second of four topical sermons in a series entitled weariness is excuse me all who are weary weariness is real is the sermon for today normally what we do here at CBC is preach expositionally through books of the bible preach sequentially through a text and that is the general diet that we enjoy and we trust profit from and about once a year we'll do something like this where we'll take a topic whether that be marriage or mental and emotional health issues or in this case weariness and the reality of the Christian life in a fallen world and what that often looks like or feels like for us. So if you're new with us today, or maybe you've only been here once or twice, just disclaimer, this is not normal, but we trust it's helpful and we hope it is profitable for you and for the rest of the saints gathered here today. So yes, the second of four sermons in All Who Are Weary, the title today is Weariness Is Real. So there's a difference in life as we expect it and life as we experience it. There's a difference in life as we desire it, and life as it actually is. Higher level, there is a way that things should be, and then there is a way that things are. As a result of sin, because the world is fallen, that is true. There is a way that things should be, and then there is a way that things are. The world is fallen. It is wracked by sin. The creation is groaning. And oftentimes we are too. This is essentially what Ecclesiastes is about. We listened to the first two chapters of that wonderful book of Scripture this morning as our sister Jenny Lee read it for us the preacher in Ecclesiastes talks to us quite honestly about life under the sun. He talks of despair and of hating life. He talks of how even wisdom and knowledge just end up stressing us out and making us feel sorrowful. He talks of how the wise and the fool both have the same fate ultimately, that is they both die. He talks of how we work hard and what we work for is left for someone else. And perhaps even the person that our hard work is left to is a foolish person who squanders it. He talks of how sometimes righteous people suffer and how sometimes evil people prosper and do well. He talks of the fact that there is a futility and a vanity to life under the sun so sometimes when we read the preacher's words, we say, you shouldn't talk like that. To which he responds, well, I'm just talking about the things that people are already going through. I'm just talking about the things that people are already wrestling with in this life. We say, okay, well, it shouldn't be that way. To which the preacher would say, I agree with you. But it is this way. So now what do we do? So much of the Christianity that many of us have known in our you know, American kind of evangelical context is it's clean cut. It's sentimental. It's romanticized and frankly, naive. Life under the sun is hard. Weariness is a part of it. As we heard this morning, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. What has been done is what will be. What has been is what will be, excuse me. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So we're going to talk about life under the sun, even as Christians, looking to Christ, hoping in Christ, trusting the Lord, looking to the new heavens and the new earth, yet living life under the sun, in a fallen world now. So I've got five points or five headings, really. They're not super clever. I hope they're helpful to you. I'll give those to you one at a time as we make our way through. The general plan is just to think about the reality of weariness and how we experience that. Then a brief consideration of how many of us haven't been helped, even by the church, but then ultimately we're gonna land in the rest that we have in Christ and what God provides for us in Jesus. I'll be referencing a number of different passages of scripture. Some of them will be up on the screen, especially in this early part. Many of them towards the end will not be. I will aim to give you references. You can jot those down and do with those what you will. So first heading, the reality of weariness. The reality of weariness. Scripture speaks to, Weariness, a lot. Scripture speaks to struggle and toil, a lot. Many passages, I've already referenced Ecclesiastes, speak this way. It's very kind of God to give us words like this in the Bible. The fact that God gives us words about toil and struggle and heartache and sorrow demonstrates that he is empathetic to our frame it demonstrates that he has a profound understanding of our plight. And he has a profound understanding of all the confusion and the emotions that go with that. Psalm 31, 9 and 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Words of distress, my eye and my soul and my body are wasted away from grief. I have no life left in me because of sorrow. That's how I feel. My life is full of sighing that kind of like this is hard. I have no strength because of my iniquity. I'm worn out from my own sin and fighting it. And then reaping the consequences of my sin. I feel as though I'm, I'm wasting away. Psalm 38. Beginning in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Such is the plight of a human being. We are burdened by our sin. We are in a corrupt, a corrupt state, a state of sin, and we sin. And it absolutely wears a person out. You think sin isn't a big deal. Sin is the cause of all misery in the world, both at the individual and at the corporate level. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. My foolishness contributes to my problems and my weariness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. O oh, wretched man that I am, right? Sounds like Paul. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. God knows. My heart throbs. My strength fails me in the light of my eyes. It also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. I've got no strength left. I've got no light as it were, no twinkle left in my eye. All of those things are gone and even the people close to me have left me. I feel alone. Psalm 42 in verse 3 speaks of how my tears have been my food day and night. Rather than being nourished by food, I'm eating as it were, my own tears, such as my plight. We thought last week about the harrowing words from Job chapter seven, where Job, this righteous man, states that even the things that he had hoped would comfort him, like his couch and his bed, if I could just sleep, maybe it would go better. Maybe I would feel better. But God, you don't even let me sleep because I'm haunted by dreams and terrors when I try to sleep. It's so bad that Job says, I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. And I loathe my life. Job, a righteous man, said that. Psalm 88. We're going to come back to Psalm 88 in a couple of weeks for the last message in this series. But just a few verses for our consideration this morning. These would not be verses that you would typically see on somebody's refrigerator. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Don't misunderstand the struggle with weariness to mean that there's no faith. We are trusting the Lord imperfectly, but really we're crying out to him. He's the only one who can help, right? Incline, hear me, God, please. I'm struggling and I'm weary and I'm haunted by all of these things. I'm troubled and I need your mercy and your grace. Verse three, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Like I am headed to be like those who are dead. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. That image of being overcome by wave after wave after wave after wave of sorrow and grief and trial is painted quite vividly for us there by the psalmist. Such is our experience so often in this fallen world, even as children of God. Heading number two. We're going to consider briefly the stresses and strains that weigh on us, the stresses and the strains that weigh on us. So what we're about to talk about is like street level stuff, life on the ground in a fallen world. Some of these are situational things. Some of them are circumstantial things. Others are just simply the result of living in a Genesis 3 world. Of course, like as I'm about to say some of these things, our sin contributes to the overall difficulty. No doubt about that. But these things in and of themselves are hard. So what am I talking about? Stresses and strains, things that make life difficult. Think about physical things like sickness. Nobody signs up to be sick. Nobody signs up for terminal illness. Think about chronic pain. People that live with crippling pain. and You tell me that doesn't change somebody's life. Think about the reality of aging. Aging is real. Your body begins to break down. Those kinds of physical realities as a result of the fact that we're all perishing, those things stress and strain your life. They stress and strain your relationships. Think about mental and emotional things. We could talk about depression, melancholy, dark night of the soul kind of stuff. We could talk about anxiety whether that's just kind of the perfectionism stuff that kind of grinds you down or just the the haunting feelings of terrible things happening. We could talk about a whole host of other mental and emotional things that, again, people do not sign up for that stress your life and strain your life in every relationship that you have. What about grief? Death of people you love. That will change life. It brings stress. It brings difficulty and sorrow and heartache. Maybe it's grief over not being able to have children. That will strain a marriage. Maybe it's financial strain. Always pinching pennies, right? There's never money for things. Like just going to the grocery store is stressful, Not sure where the money's going to come from next week, next month. Not sure who are going to make that payment. You're worried about how you're going to provide basic things for your children, for your family. That's stress. That's strain. Maybe it's your job. Your job is hard. You hate it, maybe. You go and you punch the clock, whether literally or figuratively and it's an absolute grind, and it beats you down. Maybe your job is demanding. It's very stressful. Maybe you work mad hours, like tons of them. Or maybe you feel like you've got the kind of job that you're, you're always on call. You never feel like you, you leave. Maybe your boss is difficult. Maybe your boss doesn't like you and makes your life hard. Maybe there's uncertainty about your job. You're not sure if it's going to be there in a month or in a year. Or maybe you've just lost one. You're telling me those things won't stress somebody's life? Every relationship you have, they do. They do. These things happen. Relational kinds of stress and strain. So in a general sense, we live in a world full of sinners and so people sin against us and it hurts. It's hard. We sin against other people and that hurts in a different way when we see what we have done to other people. Maybe there are people, though, at your school or at your workplace that make life difficult for you, give you a hard time. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Maybe you're just in a hard season. Things are gray. and It won't seem to lift. Maybe you've got some real heartbreaking things going on with your kids. Or maybe it's just the rigors of life with a number of really little children, and you're worn out by it. Maybe it's your stuff, like your possessions, things that you have. Things in your house are breaking down, and it costs money, and it takes time, and it's always mega inconvenient. Or maybe your car isn't working. It keeps failing you, and again, it costs money, and it takes time, and it's never convenient. I could go on and on and on, right? We could do this literally all afternoon. But the point of that, all that, is that this stuff, that kind of stuff wears you down. It can suck the life out of you sometimes. You can feel almost like life is a cruel joke. And the only explanation for that is the fall of man. The fact that sin is real, the creation is groaning, and you are as well it can make you sometimes just want to throw in the towel and be like, I I don't know what to do here. Throw my hands up. I got nothing. Heading number three. I want to hone in now a little bit more on the reality of spiritual weariness. Spiritual weariness. So we're going to consider the internal war next week. So next week's message, brief trailer, is the saint and sinner reality. We are at the same time justified and sinners. We'll think about that, about how our flesh and our spirit are constantly at war with each other and what that means for us. We'll think about how it prompts the Apostle Paul to cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's next week. I look forward to that one. But for our time together this morning, think about how weariness is a product of, it comes from, the constant battle against our sin and the constant battle against our own corruption. It is a never-ending fight. You, like me, think you're having a good day. Things have started off well, maybe. And then suddenly your sin and your corruption rears its head as if from nowhere. And you're maybe sometimes caught off guard by, like, where did that come from? That thought, that desire, that feeling that I'm having. We must always be vigilant. The battle against sin is not for the faint-hearted. It is hard, and it's taxing. We're weary oftentimes from temptation that we come across, all kinds of things, things that sometimes, I mean, it's fair to say you're not necessarily even looking for, you're not asking for, and they happen and you're like, whoa, I'm struggling. Temptation causes weariness. We're weary from the accusations of the enemy. Satan, the great accuser of the brethren. How many times do those arrows hit the ones that he shoots at you and you think, you know, he's right. He's right. I'm not good enough. I'm a wretch. Yeah, I'm not worthy of God's love for me. I'm not obedient enough. I haven't done enough. We're weary from wrestling with doubt. Like, could God really save a sinner like me? Like, if, if you really knew how sinful I am, could you really tell me, brother, that God could save a sinner like me? That Christ could really love me? We're weary from wrestling with that kind of doubt. We're weary because we're constantly, as I've already alluded to, questioning whether we're good enough. And we're most certainly not. And so we're constantly, how am I measuring up? How am I doing? Am I making progress? And it's never satisfactory. We're constantly questioning whether we're doing enough, which we most certainly are not. These things, brothers and sisters, are common. These kinds of struggles, these kinds of wrestlings, they're real and they will wear you out. Spiritually, emotionally. Heading number four. Heading number four. I've got it down in my notes, how the church hasn't helped. How the church hasn't helped. Now, disclaimer on this whole heading. This is not a situation where we here at CBC are the enlightened people who have it all figured out and everybody else is a fool. That is not it at all. We do not have the corner on the market on church, and we do not have it all figured out. We are a group of struggling sinners like every other church that's meeting right now across this world. But these are just honest observations, sincere observations, about what many people in this room even have experienced. That's all this is. So for many people, as you experience this kind of weariness from life, this kind of spiritual weariness reality, for many people, the church has not helped us. For many people, the church has actually piled it on like you're you're weary and you're struggling, you're exhausted. And instead of the church being a source of comfort and encouragement, instead of the church coming alongside and picking you up. You kind of get the elbow drop from the top turnbuckle, you know. Kick you while you're down, you're weary and you're heavy laden and then maybe more burdens are put on. You're exhausted and you're told to just run faster. You're wiped out and you're told try harder and you'll get there. The reason you haven't gotten there is you're not trying hard enough. All your doubts that we've been considering about whether you're good enough or strong enough are confirmed. You're told that you most certainly are not good enough or strong enough and honestly, you should probably question whether or not you're a Christian. Some will say that We need to make things hard and demanding in the church in order to smoke out the nominal and to get rid of the tares. The problem is Jesus says, don't do that. Jesus tells us in the parable about the wheat and the tares, he says, don't go up. Don't go about trying to rip up the tares because you'll kill the wheat when you do that. So sheep and goats analogy, don't go try to herd up all the goats, like aggressively so. Are you going to kill some sheep as you do it? Now, somebody may ask like, brother, don't we practice church discipline here? We absolutely do. It's biblical. We we have in our church's short period of existence. But here's the thing. We don't need to go about like on some kind of witch hunt, like trying to smoke out the nominal or trying to like shine a magnifying glass on the tares. If we keep preaching Christ crucified, And if we keep loving one another and encouraging one another and fighting sin together, the nominal and the tears will either remove themselves. It's like, got no interest in this. Or secondly, it'll become obvious. It'll become obvious that their profession and their life don't line up. It will be clear. But the point of it is we don't need to go on a roundup mission trying to run the weak out of the church or run the nominal away. Preaching Christ, loving each other, fighting sin together, will take care of all of that, and it will become clear. We talk here sometimes about the the kind of green beret approach to Christianity that exists out there. And what we mean by that green beret approach is this kind of reasoning that goes something like this. You hear this sometimes. Like the problem with people, especially in this generation, is that there's not enough weight put on them. What needs to happen is people need to be, like burden, they need to have weight put on them so that they'll get stronger. They need to have weight and responsibility and all of these demands put on them so that they'll then grow. This, I mean, this is said in the church, right? So a couple of thoughts about that. One, there's nothing distinctly Christian about that kind of thinking. There's nothing distinctly Christian, not a thing distinctly Christian about that. Because there are commanding officers in the military and coaches of athletic teams all over this planet that implement that exact same philosophy and methodology all the time, and it has nothing to do with God. Second thought on that kind of green beret approach. Weigh people down so they'll grow. The biggest thing is you're at odds with Jesus. Because Jesus says, if the burden is heavy, it's not me. If the burden is heavy, it's not creedal, confessional Christianity, and it's not me If bruised reeds are being broken, it's not Christianity and it's not Jesus. If smoldering wicks are being put out, it's not Christianity and it's not Jesus. Thus concludes the observations about how the church has not helped some people in the room. We feel that, right? And so then the the question is all right, well, what's the answer? The answer is not to just run away from any kind of imperative in scripture, the answer is not to run off into some kind of lawless antinomianism, which many do, because they've been been beat to death by this kind of legalistic, moralistic stuff in the church, and so then they run the other direction into another equally terrible situation. There is only one answer for all of these things that we're considering. The reality of weariness, the struggles we experience, spiritual weariness, and all of the things that have happened for many people in the church, which brings us to our fifth and final heading, It's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Just entitled this, The Rest That Jesus Provides. The Rest That Jesus Provides. So Jesus, through what he has done for us, it is through what he has done, he provides rest for weary pilgrims on the way. It is not just like sentimental thoughts about Christ, sweet things that we can say about Christ. It is historically grounded reality in terms of who he is and what he did. We've talked about this many times, that Christianity is utterly unique in the scope of world religions in that it is the only religion that is founded upon news. It is the only religion in the world founded upon and based upon news Something that happened in time and space. Every other religion in the world will tell you to go do stuff. They will say, go do this and do this and do this and do this. And this is what it looks like to be a faithful fill in the blank. A faithful Muslim, a faithful Jew, a faithful Buddhist. You pick it. This is what you do. You do. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is about something that someone else has done for you. And then what's left is not something that you so much do. It's to trust the one who did it for you. Christianity, the biblical witness about redemptive history, is about the fact that salvation is done, redemption accomplished, and it's over. Ours is a religion ultimately about the one who has accomplished everything that we would ever need. And it is in him and him alone that we trust. So it's about what Jesus has done. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, verses that are dear to many. Come to me, the words of Christ, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Rather than the yoke of the law, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 12, 18, citing the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. This is about Jesus. portion of Richard Sibb's wonderful book called The Bruised Reed*, where he depicts this fictitious dialogue between a Christian and Satan, where Satan is accusing the believer of how weak he is, of how little faith she has, of how little love she has. And the final reply of the Christian in that dialogue is not about anything in himself, the final reply of the Christian to Satan is, yes, you're right. I only have a little bit of faith and a tiny bit of love. It's nothing, basically. But Jesus will cherish that. Jesus will fan that flame until he has brought judgment to victory for me. That's the testimony of the believer. Romans 3, 20 through 25. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that being God's, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember what Paul had been arguing for three chapters. Romans 1, 18 and following, like all you brilliant pagans out there, you're culpable just like the rest of the universe, you're culpable before God. You've actually been given over to a depraved heart and a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you condemn yourself because even though you know you shouldn't do these things, you celebrate them. Romans 2, God is a righteous judge. You can't even meet your own standards, let alone his. He will reward those who do good and he'll punish those who do evil. He'll reward those who do good with heaven. He'll punish those who do evil with hell. Problem, though, Romans 2 and 3, is that there is no one good. Nobody's good. That's why he writes these words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, because it's true that only doers of the law will be saved. It's not enough to know it. You got to do it. Nobody's done it but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's another way that Christianity is utterly unique. It's the only religion in the world that would make such an audacious statement like that, that God justifies the ungodly. Every other religion will tell you, go make yourself better and then you'll be accepted. Go clean yourself up and then you'll be approved. Go do this and do that and don't do that and you'll be let in. Ours is the faith that says that. God justifies the ungodly through Christ. Romans 10, 4 through 17. These are excerpts from this text. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We no longer are righteous through law keeping. It's through Christ. He's the end of the law for those who believe. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. You don't need to go all the way to heaven to attain it. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't need to do that to attain it. But what does it say? The righteousness based on faith. What does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's righteousness has come near to you in Christ. That's the point. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And that means everyone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, and that means everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. John 3, 14 through 16. As Moses lifted up, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Numbers 21. Right? And remember the story where there are snakes biting people and they're dying because of their sin. God sent this upon them. Then there's a up on a, like a cross beam and it's made out of gold and all these things, there's a snake. It's crafted and God tells Moses, hold it up. And when people look to it, they'll be saved. So Jesus, as he always does, helping us understand how everything in the scripture is ultimately about him, says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You're kind of getting the refrain, right? Believe, trust, Christ. John 11, 25-26. Jesus said to her, to Mary, after her brother had died, he says, I am the resurrection and the life because he was asking her, your brother, he's going to rise from the dead. Do you believe that? She said, yeah, I believe he'll be resurrected on the last day. To which Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and believes in me shall never die really. John 20, 30 and 31. The apostle says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, everything that he has written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. First John five thirteen, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I love Calvin's words on that verse where he says, There is so much unbelief that remains in all of us that we need to constantly be confirmed in Christ. That what we need more than anything is to have the power and the office of Jesus held out to us. And so therefore, it is the duty of any godly teacher to extol as much as possible the graces of Jesus Christ so that being satisfied in that, we would look for nothing else. Revelation 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty. You thirsty today? I am. When we're thirsty and it's like, I need that water of life. What do I need to do? How much do I owe you for that water? Surely it's expensive. It was expensive. Cost the life of the Son of God. But to you, it's free. To me, it's free. There's a song that we'll learn here at our church soon to the tune of "Old Lang Syne called All Glory Be to Christ. And in that song, there is a reference to that verse. The water of life and the thirsty drinking it without price. It's remarkable grace. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.21, where Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, Christ crucified, to save those who believe. 1 John 5, one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And this is a gem. Shout out to Ron Diaz on this one. John 6, 28 and 29. This is when Jesus is, he's just fed a multitude of people and there's all kinds of stuff going on. A lot of things being asked of him. He's saying things about being the bread that's come down from heaven and all kinds of stuff. But the crowd, some of the people in the crowd ask Jesus this. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Huge question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Period. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come after that, like we talk about all the time. But that is the most fundamental answer. What must I do to be doing the works of God? Believe in Jesus. Acts 16, 31. Many will be familiar with the great tale of Paul and Silas being in jail, right? And then like miraculously, you know, like there's an earthquake and all this kind of stuff and their chains just come off and they are walking out of the jail and the Philippian jailer is wigging out because he's, he had one job, right? Like, and he failed on his job. And so after the kind of freakout moment happens and they calm him down, he is like wrecked at what he's seen. He knows who these guys are in terms of their association with this Jesus guy and Christianity, whatever. And he looks at them and he says to Paul and Silas, this Philippian Gentile pagan jailer, looks to them and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas respond, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There it is. For many people, I mean, we, I could go on and do that. It could be a great time. We could do that all afternoon. But for many people, like even for many of us who've grown up in the, the church, like those words that we just considered from God himself are astonishing. They are scandalous. And and again, it's, it's so often I, I'm burdened for this as a pastor, for you and for me. Many of us have not experienced that kind of Like, you're telling me that if I trust Christ, I'm okay. We haven't experienced that. Because many have experienced a Christianity that ultimately somehow boomerangs back around to me all the time. How many times, I mean, even autobiographically in my own life, wrestling, am I saved? Am I Christian? And somebody might look at you with the best of intentions and say, well, how strong is your faith? Am I am I right with God? Well, how sincere is your repentance? Am I really a Christian? Well, brother, how are you doing at mortifying sin? Am I justified? Well, how much fruit have you produced in your life? Am I going to make it to heaven? Or am I, am I going to be one of those people that Jesus looks at and says, depart from me? Am I going to make it, brother? Well, how faithful have you been? The honest answers to all of those questions, if it's turned back in on me, is n- not enough. How strong is your faith? Not strong enough. How sincere is your repentance? I promise you, not sincere enough. How am I doing in mortifying sin? Depends on the moment. How much fruit has been produced in your life? Well, I feel like hardly any at times. Though some people tell me differently, right? How faithful have you been? I'm ashamed at how faithless I have often been. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel for all who are weary is that we are not saved by our virtue. We're not saved by our morality. We're not saved by our obedience or even our sanctification. We're not even saved by our faith. We are saved by Jesus, who is the object of our faith. That's gospel. That's good news. We don't have, like the Apostle Paul, we can rejoice and celebrate the fact That we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but we have a righteousness from God that is based on faith in Christ. We can rejoice in freedom, knowing that any righteousness that I tried to conjure up on my own is like a filthy rag before God. And we can rejoice that all of the righteousness that would ever be required of me or you has already been given you through the work of Jesus Christ in your place. We can rejoice that all of our corruption and all of our sinning has been taken upon the Son of God and dealt with in full. We can rejoice and find rest because he suffered and he bled and he died to atone for our sin and to satisfy the wrath of God against us. We can find rest in Christ because in him there is adoption into the family of God. We've been given a new name. In Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. One of the most scandalous things that could perhaps ever happen in a church service is for a human being to stand up here and tell a group of people like us, you are forgiven. In Christ, you're forgiven. That is scandal, man. Like if you don't feel that tension, like bro, how can you say that? On the basis of this, I can say, forgiven, so am I. In Christ, there is perfect and permanent righteousness. In Christ, there is freedom and joy and hope for the weary. In Christ, there is salvation. So what do you need to do? Believe it. Believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in him, hope in him, rest in him. Really, brother? Are you serious about that? Believe? Yes. Such is the scandal of the gospel. Horatius Bonar as like so obviously pull the curtain back. I'm reading some Horatius Bonar right now because he's showing up in sermons. He's a Scottish pastor, hymn writer. He's most famous for his hymns. Lived in the 1800s. Faithful man wrote and said many good things. In this particular book that I'm reading, it's excellent. God's Way of Peace, that's what it's called. He writes this. He's writing in the 1800s. I tell you that because of something he's going to say. Listen to these words. The difficulty of believing has its real root in pure self-righteousness. And the struggles to believe, the endeavors to trust of which men speak, are the indications of this self-righteousness. So far, he's talking about spiritual exercises here. So far are spiritual exercises from being tokens for good. They are often mere expressions of spiritual pride, evidences of the desperate strength of self-righteousness. It is worse than vain then to try to comfort an anxious soul by pointing to exercises or efforts as proofs of existing faith. They are proofs, either of ignorance or of unbelief, proofs of the sinner's determination to do anything rather than believe that all is done. To do some great thing called faith in order to win God's favor, the sinner has no objection. Nay, it is just what he wants, for it gives him the opportunity of working for his salvation. But he rejects the idea of taking his stand upon a work already done and so ceasing to exercise his soul in order to effect a reconciliation for which all that is needed was accomplished 1,800 years ago. Upon the cross of him who was made sin for us, though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Close quote. It's a good word. Are you laboring hard this morning? Are you carrying heavy burdens around with you? Are you mindful of how sinful you are and how far short you have fallen? Are you weary from the struggle? The call of Christ is come. Come to me, come to Christ, you who are weary and find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus because he is gentle and lowly in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, thank you for Christ. He is our only hope. We know that. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit to continue to sustain our faith in him. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit to continue to sanctify us and cause us to do the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. And we pray that we would never trust in them ultimately. That we would be encouraged by them and bolstered in our faith by them, but that we would never rest there. We pray that our confidence and our boasting and our hope and our joy and our glory would be in Christ alone forever. We pray for those in the room who are feeling especially weary, maybe because of things going on in their lives, maybe because of the battle against sin, or for any other reason. We pray that you would comfort them, strengthen them, reassure them in Christ. And we pray that. As we come to this table that is for the weary, that you would minister to us all there. Thank you for delivering wretches like us from bondage to sin. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.